Please be seated. You can open your Bible to Acts chapter 6. Um, so let me uh, tell you where we're going to go um, the next few weeks. Next Sunday is the beginning of the Advent season. And we'll be taking a break from the book of Acts uh, to talk about some passages from the beginning of Luke's gospel. And the title of that series is... Uh, Songs of Christmas, and you can see the passages uh, on the, the website. Uh, if you go to our website, there's a link to click on. It says Advent, and you can see where we're going to go. And um, I'll just be honest, I totally stole that series and the texts and the title from a friend of mine. So, <laughs> um, But I'll read the texts, and we'll have real sermons, and it'll be fine. But uh, Songs of Christmas, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, It'll kind of tie in with the fact that we have a little bit more music going on uh, during Christmas. And so um, it's a good time to invite your friends and family, uh, things like that. So also, Brian Friesen has prepared an Advent prayer calendar slash booklet that um, is available on that same web page. You can click on it and see it and get get the PDF, download that. Or uh, we'll have copies here for you next Sunday, and it's great. It takes you through uh, day by day, all through Advent, and turns some good uh, thoughts for our reflection and, and prayers for us to to guide us through that season. So, um, so this is the last week in the Book of Acts until January, and this morning's passage is a doozy. Um, it's a long one. As you see, chapter six, verse eight, through chapter eight, verse three. Um, Really, in order to do it justice, we'd have to talk about it for a few hours, and we won't do that. Um, we're not even actually going to read the whole thing. Uh, I timed it last night to see if I should do that, and it took me 12 minutes, which is like half of my time up here. So <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to read from the beginning of the text, and then skip to the end, and then in explaining it, I'll reference some of the middle parts, and hopefully it'll all make sense and your lives will all be changed forever. Um, so let's get a little context to our passage. The, um, the apostles have been commissioned uh, by the risen Lord Jesus to testify to his salvation, to his resurrection, to his grace, uh, to his uh, life that he's offering to people freely. Uh, the apostles have been commissioned to be his witnesses, he said, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, so ever-expanding circles uh, outward. The Spirit came at Pentecost and filled the disciples, empowered uh, them for gospel love and uh, ministry and mission. As the church grew by the proclamation of the gospel, it encountered serious resistance by uh, the existing leadership, the Jews who uh, were in charge in Jerusalem, and they ran into some internal problems as well, but um, nevertheless, God continued to grow his church, and the ministry uh, kept expanding, and last week we looked at how the ministry leadership began uh, to be shared in order to compensate for that growth as the seven were elected and ordained for service. And these seven were Hellenistic Jews, remember they're, they're those whose families had come from the dispersion, that is, they uh, weren't from Palestine. They were from surrounding nations. They'd been driven out by uh, persecution centuries before, and some, some of them returning to Jerusalem. And these seven men were some of them. 
And, um, and at least one of them was uh, just a Gentile who had converted to Judaism before becoming a Christian. Um, and the fact that they were Greek, uh, Greek types, Greek-speaking, Greek culturally more Greek maybe than Jewish, uh, was symbolic of the imminent growth of the church as it would uh, go beyond the borders of Israel. And the first of the seven listed is Stephen. And in our passage this morning, Stephen um, is dragged before the Sanhedrin, right, the council of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who had just gotten Jesus killed a couple months before. And um, Stephen was questioned about his views regarding the temple and uh, Moses. And the big part in the middle that we're not going to read, uh, you know, most of chapter 7, is his defense speech there in the council as he's kind of put on trial, um, which is actually the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, and it's brilliant. Right? It's amazing. It's, you can spend a lot of time looking at it, but the Sanhedrin hates it, so they kill him. Um, and this event sparks a persecution that drives the church out. And, and they take the gospel out. It's really the trigger for the gospel being preached in all the nations, uh, which is what Jesus said he wanted. <laughs> and it's an incredibly significant event in the history of the world. Um, and it seems to me that through this, this really long passage, everything that's going on in it, uh, there's kind of one major theme running through it, and that theme is worship. And uh, I'll explain that as we go along. <laughs> but let's pray, and then we'll read uh, from the text. Father, as we come to your word, we know we need your help. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to give our attention to it. We pray that you'd help us to give our hearts and our lives uh, to you as we are uh, confronted by your word and as we're also comforted by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts, I'm going to read chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 2. And then I'm going to read 748 to the end of uh, 8.3. So hopefully I'll remember that. <clears throat> and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And then Stephen gives his sermon. And we pick up in chapter 7, verse 48, where it's at the end of his sermon. He says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So, Stephen got into some debates with some fellow Hellenistic Jews, right? Um, People who listed there from North Africa and what's uh, now present-day Turkey. It might even be that Saul, who we see here first appear in the book of Acts uh, at the end of this passage, it might be that he was among them, right? Uh, He was from Cilicia, which is present-day Turkey. Uh, He was perhaps one of the people arguing with Stephen who raised up the false witnesses against Stephen to get him in trouble. What were the two major accusations that they brought against him? Um, They're kind of repeated three times. It says in verse 11 of chapter 6, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And verse 14, we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So basically, there's a repetition of two essential things. They say, Stephen is speaking against the temple, and he's speaking against Moses. Now, if you're a good Jew, those are the two things you don't want to speak against, right? Um, Those are the two things you revere most. The temple was at the center of their religious and national identity. It was the special place where God met with his people, Israel. And... um, And Moses had been used by God to deliver them out of Egypt. Uh, God revealed himself and gave his law to his people, Israel, through Moses. So if Stephen is actually speaking against the temple and against Moses, then he would be found guilty of a a capital offense. Uh, And maybe you've read his speech before, uh, which we skipped over. And maybe actually after this, I'd recommend you go home and read it because there's a lot in it that we're not going to be able to talk about. But um, 
At first, it seems a little strange. Like, why is he going on and on giving this Old Testament history lesson? lesson? Um, he walks through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. Uh, you might think that, well, he's defending himself against accusations that he's not a good Jew. So he wants to prove to everyone that he is and that he can recite biblical history with the, with the best of them, right? Uh, but that's not it. Every phrase of his speech directly addresses the two charges that are brought against him. And he shows that he has an amazing understanding of the temple and of Moses. And at the same time, he actually turns the accusations against him and kind of turns them around against his accusers and shows that it's actually their view of the temple and their view of Moses that is corrupt. And... Um, Ultimately, he rests his case on God's purpose for the temple, right? on God's purpose for Moses and other major leaders throughout Israel's history. The Sanhedrin has a distorted view of the temple in Moses. Uh, Jesus pointed that out clearly toward the end of his life. The, the leaders of Israel had been using the temple and they'd been using Moses and the law that they received through Moses to puff themselves up and to set themselves apart from everyone else, those nations out there, right? Israel has the temple, the place uh, where God specially dwells with his people. And therefore, obviously, Israel is better than the rest of the nations. Um, Israel can claim the great leader Moses, through whom God demonstrated that he loves Israel more than he loves any other nation, right? The temple and Moses, for them, are... Uh, Pictures, they're symbols of their spiritual superiority. And Jesus exposed this for what it really was. It was using religion to exalt themselves. The Jewish leaders might have talked as if they were glorifying God uh, with their reverence for the temple and Moses, but really they were just worshiping themselves and leveraging God's gracious gifts to them uh, for their own glory. And Jesus had some pretty strong words for them about these things, which is why they had him killed. And Stephen here has some pretty strong words for them too, which is why they have him killed. So what did Stephen say about the temple and about Moses? Well, he called attention to their, the, the purpose for these things, uh, as God had intended. What is the temple for? To worship God, right? Why was Moses called to lead Israel out of Egypt? So all the people could worship God. God has been working throughout history, Stephen says uh, in his sermon, to call the people to worship. That's the important thing. That's the main thing. And you know what, Stephen says, that doesn't just happen in a building made of big stones in Jerusalem. True worship happens where God graciously reveals himself, when people are granted to be in his holy presence. That's where the, the real temple is. That's where the purpose of the temple is fulfilled. He says in, uh, in his speech at the beginning in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 2, the God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Right? 
Now, the, the, the glory of God, when you think of it biblically through the Old Testament, is a picture that's associated with the tabernacle or the temple, right? It's the place where God has set his presence as a meeting place with his people. And here, the God of that glory revealed himself to Abraham, not in the promised land, not in the temple, but out there in Mesopotamia, right? That's where he started meeting with people. In fact, when Abraham got to the promised land, it says in verse 5, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Right? So what? Abraham had no access to a temple. He didn't even have access to the uh, ownership of the land that um, the temple would be built in. In fact, his descendants wouldn't even have access to the promised land for 400 years uh, because they were enslaved in Egypt. Right? Um, but God promised to bring them out so that, verse 7, they would worship him. So then what happened? Joseph was sold in, uh, by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And verse 9 says, God was with him. Right? Not in the temple. In Egypt. Of all places. Can you imagine those heathen? And then later, Moses came along. He ran into God, where? Not in the temple, a burning bush in the desert. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Really, a patch of sand in the desert, holy ground. Um, not the temple. Yes, holy ground because God was there. Because God revealed himself there. His presence and his glory was made known there. Wherever God chose to meet his people, that place was holy. And that was where true worship uh, took place. Verse 44, our fathers, Stephen continued, had, had the tent of witness, the tabernacle, in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So God gave Moses a vision of heaven which is where the ultimate temple is, right? The place where God dwells fully and immediately with his people. And the tent of witness, that tabernacle, that traveled around with Israel in the desert and was arranged according to the vision of this heavenly temple. That tent was mobile, and that tent was used uh, largely outside of the promised land. Joshua brought that tent into the promised land, and eventually, Stephen continues, Solomon built a sturdier, fixed, stationary building, the temple. But the point is that these places were only significant at all because God had condescended to reveal himself there for worship. Because God had deigned to dwell there with his people. That's why the temple is significant at all. That's the purpose of the temple. Stephen doesn't disrespect the temple, right? But he relativizes it. He points beyond it to what it is supposed to truly signify. It's the place where God meets with his people, uh, where they worship him in his presence. And he says God's presence has never been limited to the Jerusalem temple. And really, it sure wasn't going to stay there as long as the temple was, was being abused. They were using it for their own uh, self-aggrandizement. The prophet Isaiah says this in, in chapter 57. 
Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose place, uh, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, which we read in our Old Testament reading this morning, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you'll build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Uh, Jesus picked up this same kind of theme in John chapter 4 when he's speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where the temple is will you worship the father the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him So God has been working throughout history to call the people to worship, people who tremble at his word, who worship in spirit and truth, who are humble, contrite, lowly in spirit. Not religious big shots who use the temple to be exclusive. Not people who think well of themselves because they're religious, who use their religion to look down on others. The religious leaders of Jesus' day and Stephen's day used the temple that way. And Jesus promised that he would tear that temple down. And he promised that he would build a new temple, one not made with hands, where God and his people would be united forever. And that new temple is his resurrection body. The risen Lord Jesus is the immortal God-man. And all who humble themselves and put their trust in him have full and constant access to the glorious presence of God. God has appeared to us in the person of Jesus, his son. And in fact, now our bodies become the temple for the Holy Spirit. And our response is worship. Unfortunately, that wasn't the response of Israel throughout history. In fact, Stephen highlights in his speech the fact that rather than worship, uh, Israel most frequently rebelled against God, as was demonstrated through their rejection of leaders that were sent by God. Uh, Stephen had been accused of speaking also against Moses. And he turned uh, the tables on his accusers and on the Sanhedrin, he pointed out that long before Moses, Israel had been hostile toward another of God's great leaders. He says in uh, chapter 7, verse 9, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Joseph was basically a type of Christ. He was a deliverer. He was basically a savior of the world because he made sure that people didn't starve during a seven-year famine that covered all the known world, right? It was only after his rejection by those who should have loved him that he was revealed as God's chosen deliverer. That's Joseph. 
And then Moses, as he sought to bring justice to Israel under Egyptian oppression, was rejected by his own people. It says in verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Verse 27, uh, one of the people he's trying to help, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Verse 39, Stephen says, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Nevertheless, um, despite being rejected by his fellow Israelites, God used Moses to rescue a couple million people from slavery to lead them out of Egypt so that they could worship God. He was both ruler and redeemer, Stephen says. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So they knew to expect a prophet like Moses, one who would be able to perform wonders and signs, who would be rejected by his brothers, yet who would be made by God ruler and redeemer of his people. And when that one came, uh, Stephen's audience, the Sanhedrin, they killed him. Verse 51, he just lays into them. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. Jesus is the righteous, righteous one. He's the ruler and redeemer. He's the leader and the savior of God's people. And the religious leaders killed him out of jealousy. That's what religious people do is they reject God. Because he threatened their power. Because he threatened their authority. He threatened to undermine their status and what they thought about themselves. And rather than submit to the one true leader of God's people, the only one who could actually free them from their slavery to sin and selfishness uh, free them for an eternal life of joyful worship in God's presence. They mocked Jesus and they beat him and they crucified him. And they didn't appreciate of being reminded of this by Stephen. Right? It says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They were sawn to their hearts. And they ground their teeth at him. Who does that? That sounds pretty hostile. But they haven't moved to kill him yet. You know, what really sets them off um, is Stephen's prophetic vision of Jesus in glory with God. It says in uh, verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they lose it and they rush him and they're screaming. And covering their ears. That's a frightening picture. But why did this vision set them off like that? What is it about what Stephen said there that seemed worse than when he bluntly accused them of being murderers? because it was a vision of the true temple. 
and the true Moses-like leader. And it was a vision that he was coming in judgment. Stephen saw the glory of God. He saw the heavens opened. The heavens are the true temple. That's the place where the glory of God dwells, right? And Stephen saw Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. And the Son of Man, this is the only time anybody except for Jesus calls Jesus the Son of Man in the New Testament. The Son of Man is is from Daniel chapter 7. He's given everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, and the context of this vision is the courtroom of judgment. And Jesus is that king, and Jesus is that judge. And you know how we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When the king is seated, that's good news. He's ruling over his people. Uh, When the king is standing, as he is in Stephen's vision, he's standing in judgment against his enemies. Uh, Isaiah chapter 3 says of God, he stands to judge peoples. So Stephen saw this vision, and he told the Sanhedrin that Jesus, the prince and savior from God, was standing in the temple ready to judge them. Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was full of grace and power. He spoke with the wisdom and the spirit. His face was like the face of an angel. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he was at peace when he was attacked and murdered. And he prayed for his attackers. He's been in God's presence. He's been transformed by God's presence. And his actions and his words, his life and his death are worship. It's an offering to God. Commentator David Peterson says this, Stephen believes that Jesus is the judge who can either condemn or forgive even those who unjustly brought about his death. This prayer serves as a substitute for the offer of forgiveness normally found in the speeches and acts. Stephen cannot speak of forgiveness to an audience that has stopped its ears, but as his last act, he prays for their forgiveness. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Thus expressing his desire for their good and testifying to God's saving possibility. And you know what? The saving possibility of God is powerful. You might think that this is just it with the Sanhedrin. This is their last chance. They blew it. You might think that there's no hope for people this bad. Right? No way that Stephen's uh, final crazy prayer for forgiveness could ever be effective for people like that. Uh, but right there at the end you have it. It's, it's the hint. It's the glimmer of hope. Saul approved of his execution, it says. The people who stoned Stephen laid their garments at this young man's feet. Young man, um, the word for young man, really, actually, I guess it means any, someone anywhere, uh, anywhere from 24 to 40 years old. So he's not like he's a kid or whatever. He's, he's probably an adult. 
Um, but the fact that they laid their garments at Stephen's feet was probably a sign that he was in charge of the stoning. Um, he was recognized as a leader of the opposition to the church. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, and Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. It might not sound much like hope. Right? It might sound like things just get tremendously bad from here on out. Um, there's no way that hard-hearted, stubborn, self-righteous, condescending, power-hungry murderers like those on the Sanhedrin could ever change. No hope that they could ever become humble and contrite, that they could ever submit themselves to Jesus as leader and savior. No hope that they could ever truly worship God in spirit and in truth. There is no way that some aggressive persecutor like Saul would ever find forgiveness in Jesus, whatever Stephen might have prayed for his enemy. But everybody knows what happens to Saul. Right? How do you think we got this story? Maybe it was Saul who told it to his friend Luke. You know that persecution that he started, all those Christians that he drove out, when Saul became a Christian, he outran every single one of them as a missionary, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine how hard it was for Luke to write this about his friend? He stood there approving the execution of the first martyr. And about 30 years after this, after he watched Stephen die, it was at the end of his life, he wrote this. Uh, to his friend Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So if there's hope for someone like Saul, if there's mercy and overflowing grace, for someone like Saul, Paul, uh, then there's mercy for you. And there's mercy for everyone you know. Uh, and there is that hope. Thanks be to God. Amen. <clears throat>